Welcome to Today on Broadway for Thursday, May 14th, 2020. I'm Broadway World's Matt Tamanini. I'm here on my own today. Not much news, but as I promised yesterday, we do have a wonderful interview with Alyssa May Gold, who's one of the stars of the eventually upcoming Broadway premiere of Paula Vogel's Pulitzer Prize winning play, How I Learned to Drive. We will get to that here in just a few minutes, but we do have some news we want to get into. And before we do that, I want to remind you that you can hear all of our interviews first if you are one of our Patreon subscribers at patreon.com slash broadwayradio, broadwayradio.com slash Patreon. Then all of the interviews will be available on our regular podcast feed the following morning. We have a ton of really interesting things coming up as we have throughout this entire two-month quarantine period. So we really appreciate everybody who joined us over there and continues to support Broadway Radio in whatever means you are able and interested in doing. All right, now on to the news. Yesterday it was announced that the upcoming world premiere of the new Michael Jackson musical simply called MJ, much better than the original title, has postponed its Broadway run. They were initially going to start performances on Monday, July 6th of 2020. Of course, that is not going to happen now. So they've decided to push back their first preview performances to March 8th of 2021 with an opening night scheduled for Thursday, April 15th. Of course, as we said yesterday with Plaza Suite, I still think that might be a bit optimistic. I hope I am wrong. Um, but starting shows in early March might not actually still be possible. But if they do, the show will be playing, of course, at the Neil Simon Theater. It boasts an unbelievable creative team with two-time Pulitzer Prize winner Lynn Nottage writing the book and obviously the score being a prize of some of Michael Jackson's greatest hits. It also is being directed and choreographed by Tony Award winner Christopher Wheeldon and is starring Ephraim Sykes as Michael Jackson. We have long documented the issues with the fact of bringing a Michael Jackson musical to the stage uh, just in general, but uh, you know, normally we would trust Lynn Nada to do the right thing and how she communicates this story. But I do think that something like this will be the type of thing that succeeds when Broadway eventually does return. Something with a very big flashy name attached to it, like Michael Jackson, the incredible songs and dance moves that everybody knows and loves. I think if anything can get people to get into a theater in March or sometime in 2021, it would be something like this. So while the fact of glorifying this individual's life might be very problematic for many of us, this might be something that does have some positive, at least on the business side, for Broadway when things do return to normal. In other news, we did learn about another unfortunate cancellation on Wednesday as the Hollywood Bowl announced that they would be canceling their entire 2020 season. Obviously, in a venue like that, having uh, social distancing uh, is possible because it's gigantic, but you would still have way too many people to fit under any of Los Angeles County's shelter-in-place orders. Of course, that includes the previously announced production of School of Rock that was going to be taking place there this summer. Also on Wednesday, NYC and Company, which is the marketing organization for the city of New York, announced that they were starting their own coalition aimed at reopening and marketing entertainment and tourism dependent businesses in the city when things begin to open. The coalition is being led by Charles Flateman, who is the executive vice president of the Schubert organization and the chairman of NYC and Company, is being co-chaired by Lin-Manuel Miranda. My, my good buddy Charlotte St. Martin is going to be a part of the steering committee as well. In a press release, Fred Dixon, the president and chief executive of NYC and Co., wrote to uh, all of their members, informed by medical expertise and social distancing protocols, the coalition will focus on messaging, marketing, and promotions with the goal of restoring the city's brand and destination appeal. 
Of course, we have talked in the recent days and weeks of both of the reopening committees put together by Governor Cuomo and Mayor Bill de Blasio and what arts organizations were and were not included. Uh, So it is nice to see that there is one specifically focused on the entertainment and tourist part of New York City's business world. All right, that's all the news that we have for today. So we're going to get right into my interview with Alyssa May Gold. She was one of the stars of Our Dear Dead Drug Lord, which was one of the biggest and most exciting shows off-Broadway in the 2019-2020 season. If you don't remember exactly which one she was, she was the one with the green hair. Um, so that's her. And then she was going to be part of the cast for the Broadway premiere production of Paula Vogel's How I Learned to Drive. They were already three weeks into rehearsal when the shutdown happened. But Manhattan Theatre Club has announced that this show will be back as part of its 2021 season, whenever that might be and whatever that might be. We will have to wait and see when that is officially announced. I will make note that we had some technical glitches with Alyssa throughout the call. Um, We did the best because she moved around in her apartment. She switched off Wi-Fi, on Wi-Fi. We did as much as we could, but we're living in a quarantine world and technology can only carry us so far. But if you hear some glitches and some cuts in the middle of the interview, know that is why we did our best to kind of circle back when we could and you know re-go over a point that was lost in translation and then i tried to piece some things together so you will hear some jumps back and forth but despite that fact this was a wonderful conversation and something that i enjoy doing but is very difficult to do in a lot of the interviews that we do whether it's here on today on broadway or on tell me more but we really just kind of got into some of the nerdy artistic stuff and i absolutely loved it you can find all of Alyssa's uh, social media information as well as information for her theater company pocket universe in the show notes and on broadwayradio.com Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, I'm sure you are incredibly busy in meetings and uh, lots of things to go out and do. (laughs) We are all uh, finding ways to fill our time. So how are are you doing in in our new quarantined normal? You know, I'm doing okay. I'm coming to you right now, actually, from the one thing I did have scheduled today, which is uh, my theater company, Pocket Universe started a survival yeah. club and we had our, our final meeting for our first book today, which is Miracle in the Andes by Nando Parado. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm feeling really inspired at the end of this because it was very much an experiment in how do we make theater when there is no theater. And I wanted to do something that would provide a space for people to gather and transform through a story rather than trying to read a play or, or live stream something because we, I just don't have the ability to do that. And it really felt like by gathering a group of a combination of artists and also um, people in, in other fields and having a story of this time, I feel like we accomplished the goal of theater. And it, it, that's really exciting to me that there might be a, another way through this that is yeah. not it's not the end of theater. There just may be different ways to do it that are less obvious. I'm actually feeling really inspired by that today. I know I saw something early on in the quarantine that you'd said in one of the videos uh, that you did that it it does feel very antithetical when we as a community go through something difficult. Our first inclination is to band together with either the people that we love or just as a community as a whole. And, And that is the exact wrong thing to do right now. And it sounds like you are finding ways to do that, even if it can't be the traditional physical way that we kind of are hardwired to want to find. Yes, 
Exactly. I think it, it really is where, I mean, in a time of uncertainty and fear, the first thing I would do is go to the theater and to not be able to provide that or participate in it is, is this is, I think the first time, at least in, in my life where that is uh, the most dangerous thing we could possibly do. And it's been interesting, I think, to take a moment to distill then, well, what is it about theater that, what, is, what do we get from that experience that, that goes beyond, well, we literally physically go to another place and sit together? And how do we take the pieces of theater that are so comforting of communing and transforming via a story? And so by taking, you know, a, a story about survival and a story about somebody who has to really shift their perspective on what they thought their life was going to look like in order to get to the other side of something, uh, which is exactly what Miracle in the End is about. I think we we were able to accomplish the goal of theater in a totally different way. And that is about like, what does theater look like going forward, that there is that we we think a little bit about, like, what is the goal of theater to begin with? And is it how do we how do we become more discerning about what stories we're telling and who they're for and why we're doing it? I feel like this is actually a really exciting time for theater to kind of take a second and regroup. Yeah. Because when we come back, I think it, there will be this emphasis on our resources will be more limited and our our spectacle won't be as possible. And so, what what are the technically small theatrical experiences we can offer? that are epic in their stakes and epic in the stories that they're exploring. And I'm really excited and curious to see how people continue to reinterpret what we've always thought of the mission of theater to be. Yeah. Well, and I, I, let's get into a little bit of these details because the Pocket Universe Survival Club, you said the Pocket Universe is a theater company that you started, which actually, you know, kind of coincidentally, or maybe not so much, the goal of that company is to reinterpret and, and recreate classics. So you are kind of being forced to do that uh, in a different way. But with this survival club, what is it? I mean, you, you said you have meetings, you talk about books, but like it's, you've said it's not a book club because that's not what you're calling it. But what, what are you doing? How does this work? Because I know people can, you know, sign up to be on a wait list to kind of join for the next book that you do. Yeah. So the way that it works, it's not a book club because rather than in my mind, the idea of a book club is that you like read the story and then you all come together and talk about it. And here there's really a, a really specific intention on transformation and transformation of perspective and transforming in the way you would in a theater. And so we have, it, everything is guided by this article, uh, 14 ways to survive almost anything before I, I booked um, my first Broadway play going into my final callback. My mom gave me this article and I, it was it was totally unrelated to acting in any way, shape, or form, and it it completely guided me through like oh wow how to survive and persevere in just the the weirdest, craziest, most uncertain business. And for the last decade, it's been something that's really helped me roll with the punches of a very uncertain career. And so I it was my immediate thought in well I've I've started this company that is dedicated to reconsidering and reimagining classics stories and conventions and what we need to do right now is reconsider the very convention of theater and so there's a real emphasis in the in survival club about really exploring how these stories relate to this this general guide we have of how to survive anything and how the way that at least this first book that we read is structured is so much about 
how to use this story to help other people, which I think is in a lot of ways the, the meaning of theater. You know, we're supposed to, as artists, be the people that about how we might live our lives in more meaningful and connected ways. And um, and so it's it's not a it's a it's a book club, but it's also not a book club because <laughs> it's we're really trying to to be intentional about how we're using stories to help us process what's happening right now. Yeah. Do you have a second book already picked out for the yes. next incarnation? Yes. The next incarnation, we're going to be reading Who Moved My Cheese. Oh, perfect. Uh, because I think that's another another great story of how to reconsider what you thought your life was going to look like and how to roll with that. It's a really nice segue, I think, into hopefully when this I'm it's making me even more excited to do How I Learned to Drive on Broadway when this is all yeah over. Um, because I think I mean, that's a story that is so much about resilience and perspective. And I think I just keep thinking about I can't think of a more perfect piece of theater to make to welcome people back to the more traditional version of theater. Yeah. It's a small, it's a small cast. It's not a big spectacle with a ton of, you know, special effects or anything. It is about telling a very personal, very raw story. Yes. And it's, and it's emotionally epic. That's what's so cool. And, and, and I just read an article that Mark Brokaw, our director wrote for, um, I think it's American theater. Um, but he, they, he did a, a, a column about why I made the choice, this choice. And, and he talks about how, like, one of his first impulses was that the set was just going to be a rolling table and five chairs. And, and that's what our set was uh, based in. And I was so amazed in the rehearsal room at how just really honing in on the story of this woman and this event and this relationship and how the whole, all of society was kind of complicit in allowing it to happen. We were, it felt like an enormous experience. And that's the kind of theater that I'm so excited about that I think we're going to have to really go back to valuing and and honing our ability to make. Yeah, it's it's definitely, I mean, I think at this point, everyone kind of understands that whenever we get back to some semblance of normalcy, that there are going to be things that have to be different, both by, mm -hmm. you know, a self-preservation and health perspective. But also, I think you mentioned earlier, the financial world that we're going to find ourselves in when we do kind of get back up on our feet, it, it will probably necessitate a different kind of theater making. Uh, and who, you know, Broadway and off-Broadway and regional theaters have been through that before, and they always find a new uh, financial way to, to make theater. Yeah. Um, you know, regional theaters and off-Broadway and Broadway have been through that before, and they, they always find ways to kind of create new things. But that's, you know, it, it's not ideal, obviously, but it's exciting, and, and it can lead to some really great stuff. Yeah, well, it's, I, I also wonder if, if it isn't kind of ideal in, I mean, there are two very different worlds, I think, in, in theater. Sure. And, you know, we're facing one of those worlds right now, which is the reality of, like, my health insurance is tied to how many weeks I work on an equity contract. And that mm -hmm. the financial uncertainty of, of this business, I think we're really being forced to confront how unsustainable that model is and that so that's like one thing that we have to address kind of irrespective of the art but in terms of the art I think there is something very uh, one of the things that I've, I've always said at Pocket Universe the production should work in an empty room and 
it's we're achieving those stakes in an empty room with no money, then everything that we build with the resources, the limited financial resources that we have, has to really specifically enhance what the story is that's happening between the people. We have to be very specific about what what story we're telling, why we're telling it, and what design and um, emotional and human elements we're bringing in because the resources are so limited. And that to me has always been very exciting. And I think the work that we've made and the work I've seen other people make with those constraints really gets you to the heart of theater. And I think that that's something I've been really excited about with the work that I got to do this year with our Dear Dead Drug Lord and with yeah. how I learned to do that relied on spectacle. They were shows that had these um, huge emotionally epic stories and then everything that was brought into the room every person every design every light every rolling table every chair had a very specific purpose and it's a kind of uh streamlined storytelling that really allows the the actual human experience that's being explored to be center stage so i'm really excited for theaters to have to kind of work from that place and that, that everything else is now kind of secondary to if our if our if our technical resources, our tangible resources are so limited, what are the emotionally epic things we can create with you know the theater magic that goes back to the Greeks and empty amphitheaters? Yeah. As both a performer and someone who runs a theater company, what do you think the responsibility is for theater artists in telling stories do you have a specific ethos beyond the physical you know kind of doing it on you know a shoestring budget and telling these big stories but do you think that theater artists should have a specific responsibility in the stories that they tell to their audiences whomever those might be i personally do i think there is i don't think there's a a right or wrong answer i think every artist has to find this for themselves but for me personally the stories that we tell in fiction, in the news, advertising, we have so much evidence that they directly impact the choices people make in how they buy things and how they vote and how they choose what they're going to watch. I mean, everyone has the same constraints of time and money. And those those two things kind of build the pressure cooker of how we make decisions in our lives. And and the the way that we kind of plug in what's important is based on the emotional information we get in the world. And so as an artist, I feel that enormously to be very specific in what emotional information am I giving people and what artist, what am I using art to convey in a non-literal way to help people make choices or understand events or process their lives. I think that's a huge responsibility. Um, and I think I personally feel a responsibility to be very intentional about what I'm doing as an artist useful to people and is it is it showing them options that can help them process things and um, and I don't think there's a necessarily a right or wrong answer to like what is that intention but I do feel it I feel a responsibility mostly as an artistic director and as someone with a company to to make sure that the very least intentionally guides people through an emotional journey um, and within that, then trying to be as specific as possible in like what options I'm trying to present and what kind of emotional journey I'm trying to facilitate. And it's hard and I don't always get it right. And I, I don't, you know, I, I extend that to everyone who's making art is like trying to, to do something mm-hmm. useful. 
but but I do think it's important. I, I'm not someone who like buys into the it's just entertainment. Like, I don't think any art is just entertainment. I think we're always distilling from it information that's impacting how we live our lives. Mm-hmm. And so I think as the people making it, we have a responsibility to like, accept that that is the function of art and, and try to be intentional and, and responsible with. Yeah. Well, and it might not even be that the audience is consciously aware of the messages that are being given to them. It might be something where they're going from the perspective of it being entertainment, but the fact that the creators understand that there's something more going on and there's more depth to it can be just as impactful whether the people who are receiving it recognize it or not. Exactly. And I don't think audiences should know necessarily. Like then you get into like preaching and exactly to like have the awareness that you're going to take information from this and it's going to impact you there's nothing worse than this no god there's nothing worse than that and and again that's what i uh, i love how i learned to drive and how the message there's no there she's not preaching paul is not preaching anything about opening a space for the complexity of of what an event like that can do to somebody and and how many options you have and how you decide to process the event and I think that, I mean, that's one of the reasons I'm so proud to be a part of it and so proud to be taking everything I know about theater and how it's useful and, and pairing it with, you know, one of the masters yeah. of, because it feels like what we're going to be able to invite people into a space to take their experiences and filter them through this very empathetic and complicated and, and resilient perspective. Yeah. Well, and and I want to we I didn't necessarily intend to spend uh, 20 minutes on the philosophy and uh, principles of theater. <laughs> but no, I love it. This is uh, this is amazing. I've loved this conversation, technical issues uh, and all. But um, let, I do want to talk a little bit about how I learned to drive, because this is one of those shows that unfortunately was in the rehearsal process and hadn't even begun performances. I don't believe. Right. Um, you were Mm-mm. still rehearsing. Had you even made it to the theater yet? No, not yet. Our set was apparently like waiting for us. And we were we were at the end of our third week of rehearsal. We had uh, one more. How did you, as a, either individually or as a company, how did that impact you? Like emotionally, I'm sure that's frustrating to get into a piece that you clearly feel so deeply about. And then despite the fact that I think everybody understands it's for the greater good, that's still got to be disconcerting and frustrating that you have to put it on hold. Now, fortunately, Manhattan Theater Club has committed to bringing it back whenever theater resumes, but I'm sure you had a lot of both emotions and like you were talking about the financial and health health insurance side of things. Like there's a lot of personal things built into the production like this moving forward. Yes. Well, one thing that I'll, that I'll, and I was so, enamored and and inspired with and by the the people in that room that I couldn't really believe that I was there the whole three weeks that I was there. And I, I made sure that like, I was burning things into my memory as we went, because it felt to me like it's amazing. I've been I've, I've been doing this long enough that I know it can go at any second. You're never guaranteed getting past your opening night. I mean, so yeah, yeah, open yeah. and close. And, you know, so I, I, by the time we got to the day that um, we were slowly over the course of rehearsal, uh, you know, we were hearing rumors that this might happen. And then Cuomo made his announcement. And then we decided you know, to take a couple of days off. That became then the last two months. Um, grown so much as a human from like 
being in that room and and exploring that play and reexamining what a story of sexual abuse meant in the 90s that now means in 2020. I mean, we started rehearsal the day that Harvey Weinstein was sentenced. And like the whole world is like, it was a, this was the moment to do this play. And I think it will be this moment. And all of which to say that like, it was, it was obviously, I mean, I, I, I was so excited to share that play with a whole new generation of audiences, but that's not going anywhere. And so I'm, I'm still in the, wow, I got to spend three weeks working on something that it it for the very first time 25 years ago, who are coming back and reimagining it today. And, um, and I feel really, really lucky to get to be, to be exploring now, what is this play going to mean differently in 2021 than it even was going to mean in 2020. And, and I, you know, it feels less like a, I'm so disappointed and more like a, a call to action of like, that's great. They're going to, they're going to need this. The world is going to need this play and it's going to need our be ready and to be ready to do my job when, when we come back out on the other hand, I mean, there is the undeniable, I, my fury at our lack of national health care has never been stronger. And that, I mean, the whole day that, you know, I think people imagine like, okay, you're in a room rehearsing a Broadway show and it gets canceled and you must just be devastated. And all I could think was, I'm going to be four weeks away from having health insurance in 2021 if this play gets canceled today. That, like, that's the only yeah. place my actual brain was. And that to me is like, I'm not even in the the most at risk category. Like I had health insurance through the end of this year because of the the three weeks of rehearsal that we had. Um, And I just think about everyone who didn't have health insurance before this, who, who didn't think like they could go to the doctor to get tested. That to me supersedes all uh, artistic everything that like, I hope this is the call to action to the rest of our, you know, our, our government that like that has to change. And to the way that we have said that like theater handles health insurance. I, and I know that's something that equity is working on right now with the equity league. And I like, I, I know they've like snapped into action on that, which is fantastic. Renegotiate the way that the, the health fund works to cover their due paying members. Yeah. I could not be more in lockstep with uh, all of those things that you're talking about, both on a national and, and uh, an equity level. I think that the former could learn a lot from the latter on how they've dealt with some really unparalleled times. So uh, I'm mm-hmm. pleased that, that at least for the theater community, that uh, equity is taking a leadership role in trying to help its members uh, above and beyond um, what they already do. But um, I will wrap this up. I, I can't talk to you and not talk about that group of people that you mentioned you were in a rehearsal room with. Not only, yeah. um, I mean, like that's it's absurd that it's, I mean, it's, it's a great group on its own. But then when you consider the fact that so many of those people from, you know, Mary Louise Parker and David Morse and Johanna Day and uh, Paula Vogel and Mark Brokaw, all of these people who created a Pulitzer prize winning show a quarter of a century ago, reuniting like for you as someone, like you said, you're not someone doe eyed fresh off a bus, you know, coming into New York city for the first time, but you're still at a different point in your career than a lot of those people are. When you walk into a room with those, I mean, frankly, legends, what -hmm. did that mean to you? Um, Was it intimidating? Was it scary? Was it exciting? A little bit of all of the above? It was, um, the the most perfect combination of 
I was so in awe of them and so excited. Like I, I was aware that they, um, they are at such a different level. And I was so excited to get to people like that work and, and to learn from them and to, um, and to be there, you know, to, to support the work that they had done and were going to do. And, and also on the flip side, I felt like I had something to offer too as, as a new brain in the room with my experience as a millennial in 2020 from a different perspective, I felt like I had something to offer as well. And so I mostly walked in just with just so much excitement and uh, for that, that kind of meeting of, I knew that they were going to push me to, to work at their level. And I felt like I had something to offer them with my perspective as well. And that's very much what happened. If nothing else, I will like never ever forget getting to do scenes with Johanna Day, and like we have a great fight that we have. And I just every time we were doing it, I was like, ah, this is this is what the best case scenario of acting could ever turn out to be. Yeah. <laughs> so you're like sitting across the table from this legend, yelling at each other, and and like we're both so out of the realm of who we are uh, in real life. It felt like it felt like real acting, which is just a uh, dream come true yeah well i can't tell you how excited i am for this show and well, i mean all shows but especially this show to uh come back whenever that might be if uh, mtc has has said that you'll be part of, of their 2021 calendar but very excited and i i can't tell you how much i've i've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation i wish that our connection was a little bit better but um that's part of the part of the joys of quarantine life but um I really appreciate you taking the time to talk through all this stuff and good luck with the rest of quarantine. And, and hopefully we will see a lot of great stuff on the other side. Yeah, I, I am too. And I'm, I'm really excited to, to be one of the artists, hopefully welcoming people back to theater with a play that I really believe in and can't wait to share. All right, thanks for listening to Today on Broadway. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Broadway Radio, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Matt. Hope everybody has a wonderful Thursday. We will be back in some form or fashion on Friday to finish out your week.